0: You're listening to The Diplomats Podcast on Asian geopolitics. As always, I'm your host, Ankit Panda from New York City.
1: And this is Prashant Warren from Washington, D.C.
0: How are you today, Prashant? Good. How are you doing? I'm doing well. I'm looking forward to our latest discussion, of course, as always. It's a highlight of the week. And uh, this week, I thought, Prashant, we'd go back to a flashpoint that keeps on giving, unfortunately, which is the South China Sea remains as hot as ever, uh, remains as dynamic as ever, and there's a lot to talk about. There have been quite a few interesting developments in recent weeks. So we've done a few podcasts like this where we've done a South China update for our listeners of sorts, so I figured we'd continue that series today. Sound good? Sounds good. right, cool. So um, just to kind of lay out for listeners what's on the agenda today. Um, So first, you know, we'll talk a bit about um, recent developments uh, between China and the Philippines. And this is something Prashant and I both take an interest in. So we've done quite a few podcasts on this. So if you've been listening for a while, you've probably heard us talk uh, about uh, Duterte's uh, recalibration of the relationship, the rebalancing in the Philippines between the United States and And China, uh, certainly not an end to the alliance with the United States, but certainly uh, taking the Philippines in a different path. Uh, There have been some interesting developments uh, recently, and Prashant's been um, writing about this quite a bit, so uh, hoping to get some thoughts from him on that. And then briefly, we'll just talk a bit about some of the recent pictures that came out of the Philippines uh, looking at China's artificial islands. There are the most uh, detailed aerial photographs we've had of these facilities. Uh, Previously, we've seen a lot of fantastic uh, imagery intelligence work by um, places like the Asia Maritime Transparency Initiative at CSIS, where uh, Greg Poling, who we've had on this podcast, uh, tracks tracks China's um, development of these facilities, that it's built the artificial islands and the Spratlys quite closely. Um, But yeah, I just wanted to also lay out just you know the breadth of what China's built. So I think at latest count, we have about 72 jet hangars uh, among all of the seven Spratly facilities, uh, mobile missile shelters, uh, radar and signals intelligence facilities, ammo depots, point defense emplacements, and, and of course, uh, three airstrips that are capable of accommodating um, any and all aircraft in the People's Liberation Army Air Force or People's Liberation Army Navy's um, aircraft inventories. Uh, so that's um, the scale of where we are today. And of course, we have over 290,000 square kilo, um, square meters of um, reclamation completed successfully in the Spratlys. Um, and then finally, uh, after we talk a bit about uh, China-Philippines and uh, China's militarization of features, uh, we'll talk about bit briefly about um, the extra-regional countries and what they're up to. Uh, Specifically, I think we'll talk a bit about the United Kingdom, Prashant, which has uh, recently um, gotten a few headlines for its interest in the South China Sea. Again, it wasn't a new announcement, particularly the UK had talked about this last year, but uh, for some reason this year, uh, things stuck a bit. The UK will be sending a frigate to the South China Sea with freedom of navigation in mind. Uh, So we'll talk a bit about what that might mean. Um, So does that sound good? Yeah, sounds good. Right, cool. So, um, Prashant, I guess a good place to start here is uh, with your recent article where you warned our readers at The Diplomat to not make too much of any uh, so-called breakthroughs between China and the Philippines when it comes to the South China Sea. Um, And obviously, uh, like I said in the intro, Rodrigo Duterte has... um, pursued a uh, um, a serious period of rapprochement with Beijing. And they have been talking about um, you know joint projects and development of the South China Sea, even as uh, some difficulties persist between the two countries when it comes to issues like Benham Rise um, in the West Philippine Sea, outside of the region. But Duterte, uh, obviously, you know, he got some headlines last week for a, a speech that he made in which he uh, proposed as a joke to make uh, the Philippines a uh, province of China. Um, So obviously, I think, you know, there is some concern, obviously, in the United States, but also inside the Philippines about the direction the president is taking things. But can you just, uh, you know, walk us through a bit about some of the recent, uh, you know, um, basically the TikTok developments between Manila and Beijing and where things are going?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think a good place to start um, for that is just to frame the discussion for listeners, um, which is, you know, over the past few years, what we've witnessed is, The Philippines used to be regarded within Southeast Asia um, and ASEAN as the most forward-leaning of the four Southeast Asian uh, claimants in the South China Sea, with the others being Malaysia, Brunei, and Vietnam. Um, And it was the Philippines that, under the former uh, government of Benino Aquino, uh, filed uh, a case against China, um, which is a case that we've talked about before on on the podcast. The ruling was issued um, back in 2016. Um, And since then, since Duterte uh, was elected, um, we've seen a slow erosion um, of the Philippines' position on the South China Sea, including its chairmanship last year of ASEAN, where uh, the Philippines has really uh, not only avoided talking too much about the South China Sea, unlike the previous administration, but really has gone through what you rightly characterized as, as a significant shift in its relations with China and also uh, seemingly to move uh, away from, from the United States. So we, you have this position where the most forward-leaning claimant on the South China Sea has really uh, dropped the ball uh, on this issue, and that has effects not only for the Philippines, but also the region as well. So you're seeing, you know, other claimant countries like Vietnam. You're seeing countries like uh, Singapore and even outside actors like the United States having to recalibrate how they think about and act in the South China Sea, given how the Philippines' position um, has been changing. So that's kind of the broad frame for the discussion as to where the China-Philippine uh, relationship is. Um, as I mentioned in the piece, I mean, we, we should be very careful about um, what the leaders are talking about with respect to breakthroughs and what is actually being achieved. So the 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 recent event that had gotten a lot of attention over the past few weeks was the second iteration of the China-Philippines dialogue on the South China Sea that they had set up. And essentially You know, if you uh, read the statement that came out and you compare it to the statements of uh, previous years and you look at the actual scope of cooperation, it's largely the same. They're still talking about the potential for joint exploration, still talking about scientific expeditions, but no real significant progress has been made. And um, the other point that you alluded to, which is, you know, President Duterte's rhetoric Um, you know, that is playing quite badly for him in the Philippines, um, in terms of rallying opposition against his leadership and questioning his ability to preserve the country's sovereignty. So that's kind of where, where we're at a lot of moving pieces there. But I'd say, you know, with the Philippines, China stuff, you did see, for example, um, over the past few days a lot of media attention about the speech that he gave to mm-hmm. Chinese businessmen in the Philippines where he said you know essentially you should you should make us a a province of China you know like fujian <laughs> um so and those things tend to get uh, you know a lot of of press attention but as we've both noted before on the podcast we also have to look at what the Philippines is actually doing and and if you look at what they're doing there's still a, a very strong relationship uh, with the united states i mean the, the uss Carl Vinson. Uh, the aircraft carrier was just anchored um, off the Philippines within the last week, right? And, right. and you saw the U.S. ambassador uh, meeting with Philippine officials, including uh, Duterte. Uh, and so, you know, you, you have this this disconnect between what Duterte is saying and what the Philippines as a government is actually doing. So I'd say that's the other piece that we should be worried about, too.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And. Um... With regard to military-to-military cooperation with the United States, there's also this uneasy civil-military divide in the Philippines that we've talked about a little bit, uh, where kind of institutionalized progress between the militaries continues, while Duterte, you know, mouths off and gives— Crazy speeches um, on the sidelines. It is funny, you know, I do want to note that he did say Republic of China when he said, uh, you know, make us a province of the Republic of China, which would obviously be Taiwan, which I thought was a, a funny yeah. thing that a few people <laughs> picked up on. But, um, you know, classic Duterte here. Um, I do want to, uh, you know, ask you kind of a specific question, Prashant, that actually gets back to some conversations we had on this podcast, probably, I guess, as early as... Um, You know, August 2016, the first time, you know, Duterte really pulled headlines for insulting Obama and stuff. And obviously, you know, we talked a bit about public opinion in the Philippines and how Duterte, like previous Philippine presidents, entered office with sky-high public opinion. And, uh, you know, now we're um, coming up on on two years since his inauguration this summer. Um, And you just hinted at, you know, his... um, the domestic troubles that come from some of these comments that he makes and, and sort of the way that he treats uh, the so-called uh, China challenge. Um, where do you see things really uh, going for Duterte from here? I mean, is he going to be in serious political trouble soon if, if something doesn't change?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's very much the, the big question for Philippine politics um, for 2018. Usually usually in Philippine politics, because you have a president who has a single uh, six-year term in office, what you have is within the year and year and a half, um, people are still working out uh, whether they can make a deal with him, whether things are going to be changing, and usually the second and third years when you see um, – both the president rolling out his agenda in terms of some of the ambitious things domestically, but then also the opposition starts to solidify, particularly in, in, in the legislature. Um, so far, I mean, the, Duterte's position is still quite strong um, in the Philippines. But I'd say, I mean, it, when he's trying to roll out and do so many things, like, for example, he's proposing um, a, a federalist structure for the Philippines, he's rolled out a bunch of other ambitious proposals, um when you're doing that you you want to save your political capital for those tough uh, domestic issues and you know wasting wasting that on china seems to be um kind of uh, misguided because you're 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 wasting that political capital when you could spend it elsewhere so i i think that's kind of the broad frame of, of where this is going and the other interesting part of this obviously is you know we i i kind of referenced that earlier um the philippines position creates all kinds of problems and challenges for other countries too so this year in an asean context singapore holds the chair for for asean and the chinese you know ever since you know last year when the philippines held the chairmanship have been going to various southeast asian countries and essentially saying some version of the following, which is, hey, if the Philippines, the most forward-leaning claimant in the South China Sea, isn't making noise with us and is willing to do things like join exploration or, or, or talk to us about it, why are you guys making such a big fuss? You know, um, And so that's an interesting dynamic that plays out too. And so you're seeing the the, the Singaporeans too try to maintain uh, their usual sort of uh, consensus position on, on ASEAN and try to make sure that statements reflect international law, but also, you know, being very careful about how they message this because, you know, Singapore is not a claimant uh, on the South China Sea disputes. So I, that is an, another component of the challenge for ASEAN and Southeast Asia that's interesting to see play out in 2018.
0: Yeah. Um, you know, on, on the Singapore front, I thought it was interesting, um, you know, reading some of the reporting coming out of the Munich Security Conference. Um, that uh, you know Singapore's defense minister um, at a roundtable, he really offered a very kind of empathetic readout of China's thinking about the South China Sea, which is unusual for I think a um, a sitting defense official from another country to do. And you know, I mean, we've talked a bit about kind of Singapore's difficult relationship uh, with China, and and certainly within ASEAN, where the Singaporeans have taken leadership in certain um summit settings especially uh where there's you know there's been some difficulty within asean coming to an agreement on a statement we've seen the singaporeans take the lead but i think now um with the chairmanship um you know there are a lot of serious question marks at least in my mind and you know i imagine we'll we'll learn a lot more about how the singaporeans are going to manage this as we head into uh you know the early the foreign minister summits in the late summer and obviously the uh the usual november summitry in asia
1: yeah and, and the other part of the, the, the Singapore's challenge as, as ASEAN chair is that it's grappling with a period of, you know, continued uncertainty about the U.S. role, too. know, I think there's a real sense in Southeast Asia that, you know, while the United States is asking, and, and other countries, too, are asking questions of the Philippines for dropping the ball in the South China Sea, I don't think people have a sense yet as to how important the South China Sea is to the Trump administration. I think there's, there's still a significant... Uh, sort of distrust that we could see, just like under the Obama administration, where we saw the South China Sea, you know, it was an important issue for the Obama administration, but there were times where more forward-leaning actions could have been taken on the South China Sea, but the administration uh, demurred because they wanted to make sure that they didn't jeopardize the relationship with China. And I think the question for most people is, you know, where does the South China Sea rank in terms of the various priorities for the United States, either on security or in the relationship with China? There's a sense that, you know, North Korea is, is filling a lot of that now. Um, you know, where does the South China fit in all of that? And I think when you have these conversations and you go around the various actors, you inevitably always come back to, you know, what is the United States doing? Um, because these countries in Southeast Asia don't have significant military capabilities of their own mm-hmm. um, and so that's the other part um, of the equation and you know we saw the United States conduct um, their first freedom of navigation operations um, in 2018 uh, near Scarborough Shoal and I guess you know that's the other sort of uh, you know development that we should talk about in the Trump administration's approach and, and you wrote a piece about that. Um, a couple of pieces actually following the Fawn up. I mean, what what's your read on that, and where the Trump administration's headed um, for 2018?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think um, I think everything that I've seen with the way the administration has approached the South China Sea um, has left me, you know, like you, um, uncertain about the the placement of this issue in kind of the larger um, ladder of priorities uh, in the Asia Pacific. I think we can all say with confidence that North Korea is at the top of that list. Um, but I think it gets quite fuzzy and debatable the further you had down that list, you know, where exactly the South China Sea sits. And I think the Obama administration struggled with that, too. So it's not something that I hold the Trump administration uniquely uh, at fault for here. Um, I think with the FONOPS, uh, you know, we've we have seen this decoupling between um, Pacific Command, which has, uh, you know, I think had enjoyed the free hand that I think it wanted under the Obama administration to keep up the drumbeat of of the FONOPS. Um, and I also have it on good authority that there have been unpublicized FONOPS uh, that nobody's reported on, um, that I unfortunately don't have the details on either. But um, so you know, there have been FONOPS uh, in the final months of 2017 that we didn't hear about. So uh, the Trump administration is, um, as far as the tempo goes has significantly changed um, the Freedom of Navigation Operation program um, with regard to the South China Sea specifically. Um, And I think, you know, for a lot of um, the more um, legalistic minded observers of the South China Sea, this is kind of the platonic ideal of what the FANF program should have been from the beginning, which is that, uh, you know, quiet kind of a fact of life in the South China Sea, Doesn't really get massive headlines and talked about a lot. You know, the U.S. does the operation. The Chinese use regular procedures to warn and escort the U.S. ship away from their islands and then put out their angry statement. But in the process, the U.S. gets to signal that this operation um, simply protested excessive maritime claims. You know, this is not about sovereignty. This is not about um, the territorial features and who they belong to. This is not about, you know, showing that the U.S. has primacy um, and presence um, in the South China Sea. This is about a, a narrow legal question under the United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea. And I think that's actually, you know, gotten through to the Chinese. I mean, we've seen them, um, mm-hmm. you know, uh, downgrade, I guess, the salience of the 9-line a little bit in their public messaging and diplomacy. And, uh, you know, that, I think, has been a process ongoing since uh, the hearing, which uh, invalidated that under international law and an embarrassment for China. Um, but really, you know, as I said at the beginning of the podcast, um, nothing... Will ever, you know? I mean, n- none of this. I mean, fine ops are not a solution to the fact that China has built these massively capable military bases in the middle of the South China Sea. I mean, that is a fact of life, and um, the United States and its its like-minded partners. Uh, you know, you can take the Quad, uh, Australia, Japan, India. You can take extra regional states um, like the UK, the EU, um, even France. Uh, you know, there is simply not a a solution to rolling that back, right? So, I mean, um, it is a fait accompli um, in the South China Sea. that China now has these features. Right. Um, but, you know, I mean, maybe that's a good point, actually, to talk a bit about, um, you know, a newcomer possibly to the FONOP game in the South China Sea, which is the United Kingdom. Um, so recently um, Gavin Williamson, the British defense secretary, was in Australia um, and in a speech he simply reiterated what the UK had already said last year, which is that they were going to send a frigate to the South China Sea after a deployment to the Pacific Ocean and it would transit the South China Sea. Um, and I believe what what Williamson said was that this operation would take place with freedom of navigation in mind, um, but not um, you know, and he also, echoed his predecessor, um, Michael Fallon, saying that we have the right of freedom of navigation and we'll exercise it very similar to the U.S. dictum of we will fly sail, you know, wherever international law allows. Uh, The U.K. is very much on the same page as the United States um, on this issue. And actually what's uh, interesting is that um, Williamson in a recent speech to MPs um, back in London um, emphasized uh, a list of China on a list of threats, um, which is not something that you usually will hear in the UK. I mean, especially, you know, we heard a lot about uh, the rapprochement between the UK and China economically, especially under the previous government of uh, David Cameron, um, which I think took a very different approach to China, especially with um, the, Chancellor's, uh, the Chancellor of the Exchequer, um, George Osborne, who took a, a particular interest in uh, building economic ties with China. But I think the UK is is starting to come around to um, this understanding of China that maybe the United States also shares, uh, as we've seen with the national security strategy, which also lists China as a strategic competitor. So I think there is an appetite now in the UK to uh, potentially play a greater role in the South China Sea. I'm not sure we'll see the frigate, which is a Royal Navy Type 23 um, Her Majesty's Ship uh, Sutherland, undertake a freedom of navigation operation like the US Arleigh Burke destroyers do, which is you know sail within 12 nautical miles in either innocent passage or do a high seas assertion operation. I think the UK will simply show that it is present in the Asia-Pacific, that the Royal Navy remains a global navy. Um, you know, We saw the Royal Navy and the French Navy join the US and Japan last year for an exercise off Guam to show their presence in the Western Pacific. And I know there are some observers in the U.K. who are uh, proposing um, joint patrols for the U.K. and France in the South China Sea, which is an interesting proposal. Um, as you might remember from the 2016 Shangri-La Dialogue, the French, um, then French defense minister, uh, Jean-Yves Le Trian, uh made, you know, he had a quite uh, call to arms uh, for uh, freedom of navigation in the South China Sea. And he's now the foreign minister um, back in France. So there might be some room for cooperation there um, as well.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I I, I think the the British role is is interesting from a number of uh, perspectives. I think one um, the fact that you have uh, the British and, and the French and, and, and the Europeans and other actors involved in this makes it less of sort of a U.S. Uh, dominated landscape and a U.S.-China competition, which freedom navigation operation shouldn't really be about, right? I mean, as we've discussed right. before and we've said today, I mean, it's it's about international law and it should be a fairly standard practice. So the, uh, in, in my view, I mean, the, the more Countries that are involved, um, the better. But it also does bring up bring bring up this this very uncomfortable question, which is, you know, these what these outside actors do is important. You know, the United States, the UK, Japan, Australia. But you know, what good is all of that if you know the most forward leaning claimant in the South China Sea, the Philippines, is 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 dropping the ball, right? Right. Um, uh, it, it limits what these countries could do. I mean, it, under the Aquino administration, the Philippines used to be a hub for these countries to actually engage and conduct these operations. And to a certain extent, under the Duterte administration, they've had to fly a little bit more under the radar. And that has, I think, slowed down the momentum for some of this multilateral um, activity, which which has been unfortunate. Um, but I also think it, it leaves room for other countries to step up to the plate, too. I mean, Vietnam is another country that has been stepping up its engagement on the South China Sea question. There's there's limits to what the Vietnamese can do there um, right. as well because of their history. But it is interesting to see this this broader dynamic um, play out in that sense. I, I do think you, you also flagged a really interesting point, which is this kind of hardening rhetoric we're seeing in some countries on, on China. Um, it With the Trump administration, I do sense there is, is a crowd and, and sort of a, a sense of perspective on that. I'm not sure how it will play out. Um, And the thing about framing the South China Sea issue under the Obama administration, it was framed directly and deliberately as, you know, this is about the rules, right, Uh, and the the rules-based order and obviously a lot of cynical uh, responses to that. But under the Trump administration, I feel like we haven't really gotten a sense of how the South China Sea issue is being framed. I think there are folks who are trying to frame this as a U.S.-China competition issue. And there's advantages to that, and certainly, I mean, I certainly agree that the Chinese have uh, been using the South China Sea as one of the ways to assert their influence. Um, But on the other hand, if you use China as an organizing principle in the South China Sea, you're going to find a lot of limitations, particularly among Southeast Asian states, who tend to want to free ride and pursue their economic ties with China. So you may end up with a situation where these outside actors are going to do a lot more of the heavy lifting. Than these claimant countries or even resident countries uh, in the South China Sea in the immediate vicinity. So that's that's another interesting dynamic to watch, I think.
0: Yeah, you just raised like 20 interesting points that I'd love to have entire (laughs) podcasts on, to be honest. Um, You know, I will say I will say two things. So the first thing on your observation about Trump and the framing of this issue and how this administration approaches it. I think one of the biggest problems for the United States under this administration in dealing with the South China Sea, which has traditionally for the U.S. been a very kind of cut-and-dry, rules-based order approach, is simply the fact that the Trump administration has very little credibility when it comes to kind of norms and rules and valuing the liberal international order for what it is in itself. Um, You know, I think the administration is perhaps trying to find some kind of instrumental approach to talking about the importance of this. I mean, you know, uh, maybe something like how you'll... Here, uh, you know, when you're in Tokyo talking Japanese, um, you know, strategists, they'll point out, you know, oh, you know, the sea lanes are are important for our energy security and and trade. I mean, that's a more instrumental understanding of the South China Sea than you'll often hear in a speech that a U.S. president might give. And I'm not sure that the Trump administration has quite figured out how to square that yet. Um, So effectively, the rhetoric remains the same as the Obama administration, but obviously with everything else going on, uh, it's simply far less credible. Um, so that's the first thing I want to say. The second thing is, uh, yeah, on the Philippines, I mean, you're absolutely right. Um, and, you know, there are a, a couple uh, recent comments that I think were worrying, um, you know, and I wrote about, um, I think, both of them, actually. So the first was after the uh, the FONOP near Scarborough Shoal, right? The first uh, um, publicized U.S. FONOP, uh, surface FONOP. They've done um, flyovers with uh, P-8s over Scarborough Shoal and uh, A-10s. But um, this is the first surface FONOP near Scarborough Shoal that's been publicized. You get a presidential um, palace spokesperson in the philippines putting out a statement saying that all right this is great but this is really you know freedom of navigation that's the us's problem you know we have our own problems to worry about so that's the first thing and that's a you know obviously a terrible message for a philippine uh, presidential office um you know spokesperson to put out after um a a fawn up near scarborough shoal that china you know sees from the philippines obviously and then the second thing is uh you know duterte himself um in that same speech to the chinese um filipino businessmen um, talking about, you know, the the Chinese bases in the South China Sea, the artificial islands. He says, you know, oh, all of that. That's again, that's aimed at Washington. That's not aimed at us. Uh, you know, if there's a conflict, it will be between China and the US. You know, we'll be on the sidelines. And that's, you know, problematic for not only. Kind of the rules-based order reasons, but also within the context of the alliance, right? right? Um, you know, one of the scenarios that a lot of people imagine in Washington that U.S. um that the U.S. would end up using kinetic force in the South China Sea would be to come to the defense of the Philippines. Um, so that I think really you know merits highlighting as well. So yeah, I mean you know all these extra regional states that are uh, gonna gonna potentially come to the table on freedom of navigation operations, all of that's gonna have very little. Um, effect in the end um, if the Philippines um, continues down this path. So, um, Prashant, I know we're going to come back to this stuff because the South China Sea never goes away, and we're both obviously keeping on top of it for for ages. But um, thanks for joining me today. Yeah, good to be with you. Absolutely. Uh, for listeners, if you enjoyed what you heard and you'd like more, make sure you subscribe on either iTunes or Google Play. And if you have been a subscriber for a while and you like what you hear, uh, leave us a review. That really helps get the word out about the show. Thanks a lot for listening, and we'll be back next week with more.